following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, well, we are still in our series on our statement of faith here at church. Thanks, Scott, for the last two weeks talking about the church. And that was thick, rich material, um, just a lot to learn about the importance of God's people and their presence here on the earth and why we're called to community. And up to this point in our statement of faith, most of what we've been covering, perhaps all of what we've been covering, are traditional things that you would find in creeds. So this would have to do with what is the nature of God? Who is Jesus? Why is the Holy Spirit important? What is church about? Sin and salvation. We've had all these things that are part of that classical stance. And I don't know if you remember with our opening sermon about this, we noted there's a couple things that we've added to our statement of faith in the last few years that are just a way of making comments about cultural issues that right now are hot topics. People are talking about them a lot. So we want to have a biblical foundation that can help to ground us as we think through these issues. Those two issues are, one has to do with marriage, sex, and the family. The other has to do with the question of the sanctity of human life. Those are the last two things that we're going to be going through in this series. However, I started looking at my notes. Um, we, we did this series about four years ago, went through our statement of faith. So I, I went back to what we had talked about four years ago. I had done one sermon on marriage and sex. And then I started adding notes over the last four years that I've used in different places or different venues. And I'm up to almost 50 pages, which is more than one sermon. So this is going to be three sermons, at, at least at this point. And someone was asking me this week, you know, th three sermons. We didn't give three sermons to any other topic in this series. And this is true. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the other topics in the series so far, they kind of are embedded throughout the course of our church life. As we're preaching about just about anything, we're talking about the nature of God. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about sin and salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit, the importance of Scripture. Those things kind of naturally embed themselves in the flow of sermons. But talking about human sexuality, for example, doesn't necessarily. Because as we're going through the New Testament, we're talking about that as often as it comes up of the New Testament writings. And while there are key passages, it doesn't come up as consistently as, say, um, the importance of salvation. So I just want us to take a little extra time to go through this. Sam Alberry asked the question, why does God care who I sleep with? And his answer is, because God cares deeply about the people who are doing the sleeping. So as we go through this for three weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. Number one, if God cares about the people who are doing the sleeping, then it would make sense that a good God who designs us to live in a particular way is going to give us revelation about how to do that in a way that's for our good and is for God's glory. But the second thing is, I think there's very practical implications about how we order our life in this way. And I'm going to get ahead of myself in my notes already, but I think we train ourselves in how we think about God. We probably train ourselves in how to think about church community. There's just a ripple effect, a, a deeply theological ripple effect when it comes to our understanding of our faith and how we live our sex lives. 
So a couple caveats. I'm not going to talk about roles in marriage. We've done series on that before. We probably will again. Uh, I'm not going to be spending time talking about what it looks like to overcome temptation, to find freedom and healing, repentance, if sexual sin is something that's part of your past. Those are crucial topics, but for the purpose of what we're going through with our statement of faith, and because I already have 50 pages of notes, uh, I, I want to try to stay focused on these other things. I have tons of footnotes. Uh, I think there might still be a couple notes back there, but I can make more copies. Uh, as I talk, I stand on the shoulders of all kinds of giants. So I would really encourage you from Sunday to Sunday, and if you don't get printed notes, we'll post them online. Follow the footnotes. There's a lot of information there that's very helpful. All right. Biblically speaking, I think there's at least five common misconceptions about sex that we find in our culture and in our church. So today I'm going to talk about these misconceptions and how we respond. Next Sunday I'm going to talk about how marriage is intended to reveal something about God to us and what it means to live in a covenant. And then on the third Sunday I'm going to talk about the importance of family. But today we're going to address some common misconceptions. Number one, sex is simply a natural appetite like eating or drinking and so is no big deal. The food terminology is not new terminology. You see this in the Bible. The book of Proverbs talks about the importance of married people drinking from their own well. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that one of the common phrases in the city of Corinth was, the food is for stomach, the stomach is for food, and they were applying this to sexual urges. Uh, our genitals are for sex, and so therefore, just like with food, you follow your urges. We still see this. Uh, recently, there's been a phrase that's become popular referring to people who are sexually excited as being thirsty. Or you might have heard the term food porn. This is what apparently you watch on the Food Network when people go to restaurants and they have these wonderful pictures of food and you're kind of drooling over the food. So it's meant to be kind of a humorous thing, but I, I think it reveals something about the way our culture thinks of our appetites for food and drink and our appetites for sex. I think our culture views them as functionally the same thing. Uh, we're hungry, we eat, we're thirsty, we're, we would drink. Uh, if we're horny, why would am I allowed to say it? If we're horny, why wouldn't we just follow that urge? If they're all just simply appetites, and all these other appetites we indulge in, why wouldn't we simply indulge in this appetite? And the argument would go further and say, listen, evolution has hardwired us to be promiscuous, to seek to mate with as many people as we can. Why would we fight this urge? So this would be the first way that our culture thinks of sex. The second is that it's private and personal, and it's my business and no one else's. This is often heard with the phrase, get your laws out of the bedroom. Now, we're going to revisit this. I do think sex is meant to be private and personal. But the idea behind this is that no one has the right to tell anyone else how they ought to live their life. In fact, I should be able to make whatever choices I want as long as the people involved are consensual and it ought not matter to anybody else. Kind of the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but in this case, you're just referencing the bedroom instead of Vegas. The third message we often hear is that sex is embarrassing and maybe even shameful, and our sex drive is something that needs to be squelched. Now, this is not one that I have seen lately in culture, but I grew up in a church culture that sent this message. And 
growing up, my wife and I both kind of had this idea that um, there was something kind of inherently dirty and wrong, maybe, about sex, and we didn't talk about it. And anytime you did, because we weren't married yet, it was kind of presented in a way that made you think, there's probably something that's just not a good idea about this. We probably shouldn't even be enjoying it when we get married. And one thing you discover, if you grow up with something like that, when you get married, you don't just flip a switch and suddenly go from thinking, I don't know if sex is really a good idea, to be able to go, this is a fantastic idea. Those things don't change overnight. And so we grew up in a culture, uh, a church culture in this case, that in some ways sent a message that sex was bad, and it wasn't an easy lesson to unlearn. The fourth thing we hear is that sex is a critical form of self-expression and personal fulfillment, a way to find yourself and be truly happy. So in this view, sex is kind of self-realization. It's the thing that you do to fully be yourself. In many ways, your identity is wrapped up in this. And if people want to put boundaries around our sex lives, best case scenario, they're just moral policemen. They don't really want other people to be happy because maybe they're not happy. And they want other people, like if they don't enjoy it, maybe they don't want other people to enjoy it. That's usually the best case scenario if you come from this perspective. Worst case scenario is especially religious people just want to kind of bully and coerce other people to agree with their particular standards. And then the fifth misrepresentation we get is this, that our sexuality is an almost irresistible flood on which we're carried to whatever consensual destination it takes us. So that's just kind of my way of saying a very popular cultural message is, listen, follow your heart. Live life as if you're on the Titanic. Do what feels right. Do what feels good. Follow your heart's the most typical way this shows up. Uh, there are no boundaries around you other than what the law puts in place, and we're seeing more and more that people are challenging those laws. And as long as everyone else consents, this must be good. Follow this flood where it takes you. So I want to challenge these five things this morning. I hope to get through all five. If at some point I think I'm running out of time, rather than trying to rush it, we're just going to stop where we are and pick it up next week, which is why I'm leaving it open as to whether this is three weeks or more. So number one, and I, and I would offer these five because I think the Bible offers, offers a far more complex and a far more compelling view of sex than from anywhere else. Number one, Christians agree that the sexual urge is a powerful drive that God places in us, but disagrees that ignoring or stifling impulses is necessarily unhealthy. So let's make one thing very clear right off the bat. Sexuality and the drive to express your sexuality is a gift from God. God made us. God designed us. He wasn't surprised when Adam looked at Eve and said, whoa, that looks pretty nice. God wasn't like, settle down, kids. That was the way God designed it to work. So this is a gift. And one of the things we have to be careful of is while we're going to talk about the importance of stewarding our impulses, I think we need to embrace and celebrate that God has given us these impulses. There's a, an Orthodox priest named Alexander Men who noted of the Pharisees, they were constantly stumbling into passerby. They were afraid to lift their eyes, lest they should accidentally look upon a woman. They were called, in jest, kitsay, or don't hit your head. All right, so something to note. 
Jewish women weren't walking around immodestly. <laughs> if anything, it was the exact opposite. So this isn't commenting about them because they were trying to avoid pornography or avoid some kind of blatant immodesty. This was just guys who apparently couldn't handle being in the same space with a woman. And I think they were rightly kind of in jest called, hey, uh, don't hit your head, dude. Look up. You can look around where you're going. And I see that, if I understand this correctly, as a denial of the very real gift that God has given us. He's wired us to find people attractive. That's not a sign of spiritual, emotional, or I'm sorry, that is a sign of spiritual, emotional, or sexual health. If we deny that, like the Pharisees were trying to do, then I think we're just pretending that we're not the kind of people God made us to be. Refusing to acknowledge God's purposeful design in this area doesn't do us any good. This is about stewardship. Sex isn't something to be feared. Sex is something to be revered. I like C.S. Lewis's analogy. He, he gives an example of what would happen if you would visit a country and you would see the following thing. Here's his quote. Suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on the stage and slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? I think you would. Food has its place, but that's not it. If the belly always gets what it wants, eventually our appetites begin to control us. The problem is not that we have an appetite. The issues arise when we don't know what to do with that particular kind of appetite. So when it comes to food and drink, we try to align our desires for food and drink to match the design of our bodies. It is possible to misuse food and drink, is it not? Does not make food and drink bad. Food and drink are a gift. The question is if we're aligning our appetites with our desires, and that would apply here as well. Are we aligning our sexual appetites with God's desires and with God's design? Let me give you a practical example of this. So biblically speaking, there is one woman who is the rightful recipient of my sexual thoughts and my sexual desires and the expected accompanying activity. And that is my wife. Just need to apologize to my boys here for a moment for talking about this. Uh, my wife is the only lawful, biblically lawful recipient of my thoughts and my actions in this area. If someone else offers themselves to me, their body is not mine to take. And if I want somebody else, my body is not mine to give because my body belongs to God. And God gets to tell me what happens with his property. So God tells me my wife is the only one who has a rightful claim to me. And she's the only one on whom I have a rightful claim, which means she is the only one, biblically speaking, toward whom my eyes, my heart, my thoughts, and my actions are to be sexually oriented. Uh, as for the idea that evolution wires us to be promiscuous, I kind of wonder why, if that's the case, evolution didn't wire us to be more resistant to things like STDs or to equip us better from the emotional fallout that we experience. So let's go back to food and drink. If you misuse food and drink, you get sick because the use doesn't match the design. So I'll give you a practical example that I don't really want to give. But So my wife is on vacation, so I went out to eat. 
So I went to Big Boy Friday night, and I went to Big Boy because A, Big Boy is delicious, but B, they have a salad bar, which that even seems contradictory as I say that out loud. It's delicious, and it has a salad bar. Um, but I went to Big Boy because I felt like I needed a salad bar. I hadn't eaten well throughout the day. I needed some good, healthy food. So I show up at Big Boy. I sit down. And I'm like, I'm getting the soup and salad bar. And the waitress said, they have not yet put away the seafood buffet. So you know where this story is going. Uh, I had time to pillage the seafood buffet. And pillage I did. And let me tell you, fried shrimp and fried fish is delicious. And then about a half hour later, you go, I don't know what I was thinking. I went in there for salad, and I did not have salad. And I didn't feel well for the rest of Friday night. I didn't eat anything till about noon Saturday. Okay, that story's not that funny, really, but... I went there because I knew I needed a particular kind of food to fuel me, and I chose something that I knew wasn't going to fuel me well, but I just wanted. And if the use of my body and my eating organs doesn't match the design for how my body will flourish, there's going to be fallout for that if the use doesn't match the design. So I would just note this at this point. If getting physically or emotionally sick is a natural or expected cause and effect scenario from your sex life, such that you have to take active steps to try to stop those things from happening, it may be time to consider that your use does not match God's design. So the Bible never presents sex as simply recreational. It's never casual. It's never meaningless. It's sex. One body signals to another body. We are in covenant now. Now, next week, we're going to spend the whole day talking about what that means, but it's part of our statement of faith. Did I read that at the beginning? I forgot to read that at the be. Okay, go back to your notes. It's part of our statement of faith. And this covenantal purpose, I think you can find it not only through biblical revelation, but I think you find it in general revelation, which simply means God's creation. When you look at how our bodies are made, sex is oriented to bind us and covenant us. I'm going to quote a bit from Nancy Piercy. She wrote an excellent book on this topic, and once again, you can find this information in your notes. She says, pick up any recent book on sexuality, and you'll read about the role played by hormones such as oxytocin and vasopressin. I hope I'm saying that correctly. The chemical is released when a mother nurses her baby, and it stimulates an instinct for caring and nurturing. It's often called the attachment hormone. Imagine the surprise when scientists discovered that oxytocin is also released during sexual intercourse, especially but not exclusively in women. As one sex therapist put it, when we have intercourse, we create an involuntary chemical commitment. Even when you intend to just have casual sex, biology might trump your intentions. The same holds true for men. The main neurochemical responsible for the male response in intimate sexual contact is vasopressin. It is structurally similar to oxytocin and has a similar emotional effect. Scientists believe it stimulates bonding with a woman and with offspring. Vasopressin has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. And the study that she quotes says, you might say we are designed to bond. So think of the phrases, I just want sex with no strings attached. I don't want this to mean anything. Let's not read too much into this. But those are words that contradicted the design of our body as revealed both through Scripture and through God's design in nature. 
a young lady wrote to Glamour magazine for advice one time. And her question was this, after casual sex, I often get emotionally attached to whoever I slept with, even if I know I don't want to be with them. I'll snap out of it later, but how can I better separate emotions and sex? Sometimes I just want to orgasm without catching feelings. So here was Glamour's response. Just be glad people are willing to sleep with you. If you get emotionally attached, so be it. Nothing heals more than time, a cheese plate, and a little alcohol. Just go easy on the cheese. So I'm going to argue that's not just bad advice, that's destructive advice. You can read, sociologically speaking, right now there is what some have called an epidemic on college campuses of co-eds who are drinking themselves into a place where they can engage in the sexual games played on campuses, and this drinking allows them to detach themselves from the experience. Uh, that's not freedom. That is not abundant life. Coming back to the idea that God's design is for our good, and for his glory. So our words try to tell one story. We might say this is no big deal, but our bodies will tell a different story. And the story that our bodies are telling is true. And you're going to feel tension when you're trying to say one story with your words and living another story with your body. Number two, Christians agree sex is a private act, or at least it should be but it has public consequences. So, all right, sex isn't meant to be a spectator sport. Everybody uses the phrase, get a room, when you see a couple in public who's going a little further than we think is appropriate. Why would we say this is just, just two mammals enjoying each other? When the neighbor cat visits my cat, I don't say, get a barn. That is just what cats do. But we say it with people because we know we're functionally different. And the consequences are very public. The first, most obvious one, is children. And you know just from in this church community, when someone has children, this becomes a community experience. And you talked about this a little bit, didn't you, Scott, in your message about raising kids? Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a community experience. But there's another part of this. What if I, as a married man, what if I pressure my wife sexually or I simply become calloused to her experiences sexually? That is not going to be just a me and her issue. That is going to influence how she views men and it's going to influence how I view women. And as my boys grow up in that household, it is inevitable that whatever dynamics are taking place between their mom and their dad are going to trickle down and they are going to form opinions about what it means to be a man and how to act like a man and how to treat women. And if I have daughters, it, the same thing would trickle down to them as well. That is a public consequence because my attitude can't help but permeate everyone around me. I would say it this way, each man and each woman, like it or not, they bear the weight of doing PR for the entire tribe. That's a public consequence to a private action. The Atlantic had an article about a woman who accused a popular comedian of, of well, a number of Me Too moments, and the author of the article notes this. Eventually, overcome by her emotions at the way the night was going, she told him, you guys are all the same, and left crying. I thought it was the most significant line in the story. This has happened to her many times before. 
What led her to believe this time would be different? Listen, that's formative. Even if there's no children, there is a public consequence. It's formative to our character. How we act toward others sexually in private forms our character, but also it inevitably impacts the people around us. And then they go out and interact with others, and there is a ripple effect of formation that happens in sexual activity. It's inevitable. Number three. Christians better not agree that sex is something about which we should be ashamed. So, God created sex. God created sexuality. Read Song of Solomon and just be creative with the imagery. You'll blush. And you can find all this online. I'm convinced Song of Solomon was meant to be primarily a romantic love poem of a husband and wife celebrating each other that includes celebrating themselves sexually. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to married couples, listen, you ought to be having sex. Sex is God's idea. Once again, it is for our good, for his glory, when we use it within his design. Sex is supposed to bring pleasure and joy and laughter and intimacy and trust and mutual care and comfort. But this is the fascinating thing. Sex can almost simultaneously be exhilarating and embarrassing. So, you parents, you know how this works if your four-year-old ever walked in on you. It goes from exhilarating to suddenly, just like that, embarrassing. Now you're trying to cover up. They're like, hey, what are you guys doing? We're wrestling. (laughs) Who won? Nobody now. Uh, And if we're not careful, we can begin to focus on the embarrassment part of it and overlook the exhilarating part of it. Because God did not design sex to be shameful, and it ought not to be when it's exercised within his design. It's actually pretty cool. And we as parents, we hide ourselves in those moments, not because something is wrong with what we're doing, but because what we're doing is sacred. It is not meant to be a public act. In fact, I would say that being careful about something is a sign of its worth. All right, so I have two cards here with me. This is a LeBron James card, a rookie card. And considering my vast expertise on investing in basketball cards, it's probably worth at least $2. But we're going to assume it's worth a whole lot for the sake of my illustration. I got this when he was a rookie, and I actually did look up to see if this was a good card. And you'll notice this card has hard plastic around it. Your grubby fingers will not mar this LeBron James card if you get a chance to hold this, which you will not. Uh, This is another player whose name I don't want to say, but you wouldn't recognize his name if I said it. I don't care about that card, right? See, one is protected. This one is not a public plaything. That one, I just don't care. I am particular, protective, and secretive about physical intimacy with my wife as she is with me, not because we value each other and sex so little, but because we value each other and sex so much. Does that make sense? This isn't a perfect analogy, but when we value something, we care for it. This is not public property. 
Number four, Christians agree that sex has the potential to bring individual happiness and relational fulfillment. Once again, see Song of Solomon, but we disagree that this is the purpose of the sex, purpose of sex. I'm going to make an argument over the next two weeks. Primarily, I think sex and marriage are meant to function as spiritual analogies that teach us something about the nature of God and the love of Jesus for the church. Now, it's not the only way you can learn that. But I think that is the primary purpose of sex and marriage. Second, I think it's the means by which we fulfill the mandate to both Adam and Eve as well as to Noah to fill the earth with image bearers. And while I think that's also a spiritual reality in the new covenant so that people who do not have children can also fill the earth spiritually, I do think it is definitively connected with the act of marriage. And then third, I think it's the means of having a darn good time in covenantal initiation and renewal with our spouses. And like I said, I'll talk about that more next week. Finally, point number five, Christians recognize the sexual river on which we've been placed, but we let Jesus take the helm and the rudder and whatever else steers our sexual boat. Why? Because God designed us. He gave us this nature as a gift, but he also gave us the boundaries within which to experience for our good and for his glory. And I think we see this practically, that the act of sex, it either unites us or it tears us apart. And that can happen individually and that can happen culturally. So, individually, we are meant to intertwine our lives when we intertwine our bodies. I think it is a physical representation of an emotional and spiritual and relational reality. When we intertwine our bodies but refuse to intertwine our lives, there is going to be fallout from that. And it gets worse, obviously, when you think about some of the worst kinds of experiences people can have. They have to do with being used or abused or treated as an object sexually. It's different than if someone uses you in another way. If someone simply slaps me, that's painful and humiliating and embarrassing. But if someone assaults me in a sexual fashion, it's a different thing because it's a part of our nature that I think is meant to be sacred. The body is not merely a meat playground. Our genitals are not just playground equipment. We're image bearers. Our bodies are designed to be temples. Our genitals are part of a holy space. When's the last time you thought of them in that fashion? When's the last time you heard the word genitals from the pulpit? <laughs> if our body is a temple and this is a sacred and holy space, then the things that are part of my body are part of this temple and are part of this holy space. This is a place in which God intends to dwell. And he doesn't just indwell parts of me, he indwells all of me. And when we misuse our body, the temple is defiled. And, and this is one reason abuse, particularly sexual abuse, is such a horrible thing because when that happens, a holy place is being desecrated. And I think the community feels the weight of this too. In other words, the weight of either sex is something that unites us or sex is something that divides us. And I've already talked about how it can form how we view the world and view people. But reality shows are what come to mind. If you've seen a reality show where the characters in the show are just hopping from bed to bed and sex is just a commodity, if I could choose one word to describe that, I would call it drama. It doesn't seem to bring peace. 
it rarely seems to bring joy. It turns out two people from Jersey Shore can throw all of Jersey into turmoil because there's a ripple effect about whether or not the things we do, do they unite us? Do they bring, do they fulfill, fulfill the purposes for which God has designed this act or do they not? And that's why it's not just a personal interest but community interest as well. Neither individuals nor communities thrive without boundaries in this area because we're not designed to. We are inescapably sexually covenantal and covenants thrive in boundaries. But that we will talk about more next week. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.